and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 427, Operation Rudder, Less. Last time, we covered the commando raids before Dieppe. Valuable experience had been gained at a high price. Still, most everyone was eager to hit the continent to begin softening up the enemy for a much larger raid. That raid was being pushed by the Americans, who were about to take over as play caller. But none of this changed the Axis defenses on the mainland, so the attempt, some attempt, had to be made. But if combined operations and Churchill's war cabinet needed another indication that a large raid on the coast was premature at this time, they got it. We ended with Operation Myrmidon, the attempt to cut the road and rail lines between France and Spain. That was called off. What came after that, or was supposed to come after that, was Operation Blazing. The objective here was to capture and hold the small island Alderney, just west of the tip of the Cherbourg Peninsula and just to the northeast of Guernsey. The idea was to use this island to harass German shipping supplies heading to Nazi-held positions along the Atlantic coast in France. That it was to be carried out not by commandos, but by men of the 1st Guards Brigade and a battalion of airborne troops was not the problem, but practically everything else about it was. And one of the first of those involved to get headache after headache was Naval Advisor John Hughes Hallett. All he heard from those supposed to carry this out was that they could not do it, and why they could not do it. The plan called for a saturation bombing of the island, for the Germans there, but also the next closest German base on the mainland. Then the paired troops would land there, and the guardsmen would rush the beach. But the airborne troops and the guards were not feeling good about this operation, and did not hide their reluctance. Not out of cowardice, but due to their chances of success, and more basically, surviving this. The next headache came from the brass. Bomber Command, still suffering heavy casualties each time they went up, only wanted to operate at night, certainly given the island's proximity to the German-controlled mainland. But countering this, the Airborne Divisional Commander, General Browning, only wanted his men dropped during the day to increase their chances of success, and again, survival. So during a Chiefs of Staff meeting on May 11th, Churchill warned, in the present circumstances, they could not afford the risk of heavy casualties to our bomber force. And that was it. Though there was no time of death called for Operation Blazing, it was put on the back burner, which is the equivalent of cancellation in military and political terms. As that was the case, and Combined Operations was trying to complete one raid each month, that left Operation Imperator. But the details of that were still being worked out, which left a raid on Dieppe. So, like making a decision on a financial move, say a loan to help with current bills, any military operation has at least two hurdles at the very beginning. Namely, it has to answer two questions. One, why this location, here Dieppe, and what will we get out of it? As for answering those questions, little can be found in the original records. Well, little of worth. Still, it was pushed forward. Again, the fingerprints are hard to determine, but it seems that the men making the decisions had latched onto a saying that goes, Victory finds a hundred fathers, but defeat is an orphan. 
As in, if this goes well, somehow, we'll all get credit for it. If it doesn't, then the response would be, I was only following orders. Now, many think this saying was birthed by President John F. Kennedy, but its true author was Count Galeazzo Ciano, Mussolini's son-in-law and foreign minister, and he had a bird's-eye view of defeat after defeat. Be that as it may, the responsibility for Dieppe comes down to Hughes Hallett and Lord Mountbatten. Hughes Hallett was the chair of the planning group back in January 1942 that created the list of operations for most of that year, and Mountbatten oversaw the proposed raids and agreed to them, asking for outline plans to be prepared. Hughes Hallett would only later write, For June, we chose Dieppe, as by that time we expected to have sufficient landing craft to lift an entire division. But going back to the question, what's the gain?, Very little could be said for Dieppe. It was not a U-boat base, no, just a normal port. So nothing militarily gained from attacking it. And it would certainly not cause Hitler to move troops out of Russia. The best that could be said to justify Dieppe was in a report that Lord Mountbatten had produced. It said, in part, There was always one constant accepted by everyone. A good port, in working order, must be seized early on and before the enemy could have the time to carry out demolitions. In truth, this would be nothing more than a learning exercise, so one day Hitler's Atlantic Wall could be punched through, but with an eye to staying on land. For now, it was only to be a raid. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Dieppe, located about 70 miles or 112 kilometers south by southeast from East Sussex, was starting its third year of occupation by the Germans. In the summer of 1942, its population was about 11,000, half of its pre-war population. But most importantly, it was within the zone interdite, which ran from Dunkirk to Undai in south of France. It was occupied and had in places measures to counter any Allied invasion, and those measures around Dieppe were about to be tested. The man in charge of the occupied West and responsible to Hitler for those same countermeasures was Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt. 
He had helped plan the defeat of the French and the success at the Battle of Kiev in mid-1941. And for his reward, he now oversaw Nazi Germany's greatest victory. Well, until Russia supposedly fell. But all that was in the past and on paper, though true enough. A different picture of the man could be drawn if one stood in the same room as Rundstedt. At this point, he was 66 years old, but far from good health, which was made worse by serious drinking and smoking. But he knew where his bread was buttered, taking Defira's warnings very seriously about enemy invasions along the coast. A bit down the chain of command under Rundstedt was General Kurt Haase, who commanded the 15th Army, currently stationed in the Seine Estuary, where the raid would land. He was only 60 years old, but a heart condition would take his life the following year, and so far it had aged him considerably. And to keep things easy to remember, we will call him Big Haas, which he was called by his men, whereas Little Haas was Major General Conrad Haas, commander of the 302nd Division, which held the coastline on either side of Dieppe. In truth, the 302nd was only meant for occupation duties, so they had seen no fighting up to this point, though it's doubtless the British knew this. Also, London probably did not know that the 571st Regiment of the 302nd held the Dieppe sector, but of its 1,500 men within the three battalions, only half of them were in position to defend the town. The rest were held in reserve about 7 miles or 11 kilometers to the southwest. To the west and east of Dieppe, the actual numbers of defenders were equally light, though more men could be called in from not far away. It helped ease Rundstedt's mind to know that 206 fighters and 107 bombers were stationed nearby, and the fighter pilots were Germany's best-known fighter wing, the Abville Boys, so-called by the men of the RAF, with grudging respect. But it was the German defenses on the ground that should have given the Allies pause. The first obstacle was not human-made, but rather created by nature. When the Allies came ashore in front of the town, they would have to deal with the very beach pebbles beneath their feet. These were small, broad, and flat, and gave way easy when stepped on. This would only get worse if the person was further weighed down with kit or gear, and they could not be dug into for protection. But most notably, Big Haas had his tanks try to move along the beach in front of Dieppe, but as the stones gave way, the tanks just sat there spinning their treads, motionless. After the pebbles came the cliffs, which went up like walls. Oh, there were a few narrow ravines, but each one of these were covered by concrete, wire, and 14,000 mines. And where the land was a bit gentler to the west of the town, that area was covered by guns of several sizes on the slopes. Again, hard to get to. Atop the cliffs were two large gun emplacements, that is, two sets on each side of Dieppe. And these guns could reach enemy ships nine miles from shore. Specifically, to the east of the town were three 170mm and four 105mm pieces. To the west were six 155mm cannon. Besides which, there were other guns further afield 
around Dieppe and behind it, mixed in with AA fire that could be used against ground troops as well. Next was the very weapons the two sides would have on their person. The defending Axis troops would have the MG-34 machine gun. Out of it would come 7.92mm bullets at a rate of 900 a minute, and it was good up to 2,000 yards. Against this, the Allies would have the Bren gun, the same caliber bullet, but could shoot just over 500 bullets a minute, and they were only effective up to 600 yards. Then there were the caves dug into the chalk, which made great hiding places or gun emplacements, practically invisible to aerial reconnaissance. Though the sandbagged gun emplacements were easier to see, but not so much the numerous sniper hideouts. And of course, there were anti-tank obstacles. Miles of wire and all this mentioned so far went for miles in each direction from Dieppe, all covered by the fighters and bombers, stationed not 20 minutes away, whereas the RAF would be close to their range limit in supporting this attack. If the area had a weakness, relatively speaking, it was the amount of men defending it. But Captain Linder, overseeing the defenses, was confident that his men, with such support and crossfire, could hold. And as he expected a commando-style raid, his relative few should be able to inflict much agony on many. In short, almost every yard of area around Dieppe had a German weapon pointed at it. As Field Marshal Rundstedt's orders were to make sure the enemy was attacked before landing and then wiped out if any did reach land, Linder considered this very doable. Back in April, the planners, now that Dieppe had been chosen, got to work on gathering intel on topography and German defenses. This effort was led by Senior Intelligence Officer Wing Commander the Marquis de Casa Murray. But what were the qualifications of Bobby Cassie Murray, as he was called? Well, he was a socialite. He was a race car driver. But most importantly, he was a friend of Mountbatten's. Naval Force Commander Tom Bailey Groman disliked Bobby on sight, as did the others. And some of that has to be attributed to, well, him not being British, but rather Cuban. Still, between Bobby's efforts and information coming in from other branches, combined operations soon had a decent idea of what they were heading into, decent being the important word here. As plans were made, other targets in the area were identified, like nearby military and naval headquarters, radar stations, and the airfield at saint aubin sur to the south of Dieppe. As this was going to be the largest raid yet attempted by combined operations, the commandos were not enough, having only 1,500 men at the time. And as Dieppe was not considered heavily defended, it was determined to go in with overwhelming odds, backed by tanks. Hence, General Paget of the Home Forces sent some of his staff officers to combined ops on April 14th to help with the planning. And here begins the battle before the battle. Dickey's staff believed it was best to land troops to either side of Dieppe, but army staffers thought differently. In essence, their argument was, if the Germans know we won't attack the town directly, as it would lead to too many casualties, 
then that's exactly what we should do. Their thinking was, to land takes on either side of the town would put them too far away for a shocking, overwhelming initial attack. On April 18th, a meeting was held about this, and the army pushed their idea for a straight-on attack, whereas the commandos could come in on each flank. But at least the army agreed not to land troops until paratroops from the 1st Airborne Division could land and take out the coastal guns, as well as having the RAF bomb the town. General Paget chose who would have his authority to help run and decide this operation, and it would be Southeastern Commander, the man in charge of the area the raid would be launched from, one Bernard Montgomery. And Monty approved the head-on aspect of the plan supported by the Army. Pushing the Dieppe raid even more, on April 8th, General George Marshall and Harry Hopkins arrived in London. And again, Marshall wanted a massive bombardment of the coast, then a massive seaborne assault, sometime in 1943. It pretty much came down to whenever the landing craft could be ready, which was not good enough for General Allen Brooke, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, or Six, who was not impressed with Marshall's tactical thinking, and the more that he talked to the American, the less he was impressed. But the Yanks had the resources, so a soft touch was needed. As we have already seen, the British had their own plans about the war, namely to promise to go along with whatever plans the Americans came up with, and then slowly change them to suit London. Churchill got this going, Brooke helped, and Mountbatten finished it off. And before the Americans' visit was over, Marshall would be inspired to have Brigadier Lucian K. Truscott come over, attach himself to combined operations, to set up the American commando units. When the Americans flew out on April 18th, General Marshall, better at organizing than military strategy or politics, firmly believed that the British were behind his idea of a big push the following year. Hopkins, however, the real political wizard, what, having hung around FDR for years, was less convinced. But he would keep his counsel until he had a sit-down with the president. Then he would tell Roosevelt, and he was correct in this, that London still wanted to move ahead with Operation Gymnast and North Africa. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. But the clever British soon realized they were in a cage of their own making. They all knew that they had just lied to the Americans, who would find out soon enough. 
Further, the Soviet foreign minister, Molotov, would have his own visit to London in a few weeks. So between the rock, the Americans, and the hard place, the Soviets, the British had to do something, and Sledgehammer was simply beyond their means, and more besides, military suicide. Hence, London had to offer up something, and the best thing, the only thing left on the table, was the ever-growing raid on Dieppe. On May 11th, the outline of the plan went to the Chiefs of Staff for the green light. And for this to work, all that had to happen was for two airdrops and three landings, miles apart, to go perfectly. A part of the folklore around the Dieppe raid was that the Canadians were getting bored. Bored to the point that they jumped at the chance to join Operation Rudder, as it was now being called. Folklore, yes. History, not so much. Now, there were instances of some of the Rileys, that is, the boys of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry of the 2nd Division of the 1st Canadian Corps, getting into trouble. But name another time when young men with money sitting around for 18 months did not cause some trouble. Indeed, by the end of 1941, there were some 177,000 Canadians on the island, and the vast majority of them behaved themselves. Still, it will be remembered in the post-action propaganda that the Canadians would have been insulted if they had not been a part of Rudder. Either way, Monty would make sure the Rileys and other Canadians would be in on this. After all, he had been training the Canadians with him in the Southeastern Command on a regular basis, and he could see for himself their improvement. On May 16th, there's no other way to put this, Canadians started piling on to the Isle of Wight. There were the 4th Infantry Brigade, which included the Rileys, the Royal Regiment of Canada, 6th Brigade contributed the Fusiliers Mount Royal, the Queen's Own Cameron Highlanders of Canada, and the South Saskatchewan Regiment. Not to be forgotten was the 14th Army Tank Regiment, and in support of them were the Royal Canadian Engineers. All the men assembled and were labeled Simmerforce. And with these men here, the island was now cut off. No outside word could distract these men as they started their commando training. But after 18 months of drills and mock battles, most of Simmerforce were up for a change. By June 3rd, the training had advanced enough for there to be a mock beach landing of a full battalion. Again and again, the southern shore of Britain was invaded by Canadians, and defending that same land were other Canadians. As the men trained on White, the Americans, in the form of Brigadier Lucian Truscott, joined Combined Operations Headquarters. It took him a while, but Truscott learned to hear the arguments and infighting amongst the British smiles and calm charm of his hosts. And through this, he could see that rudder, or something like it, had to go off. For Britain's battered soul, to show their allies, but most importantly, to show their own people that no one here was giving up. Having said that, Sledgehammer was definitely off the table, as there were still not enough landing craft. Besides, no one in London had a stomach for it. Not yet which is when Mountbatten reminded Churchill and the War Cabinet that Rudder was sitting right there 
and the men were almost ready to go. Thus, the switch from sledgehammer to rudder evolved. But no one thought a day raid would force the Germans to bring back men from the east. But the line that went to the Americans and Soviets was that rudder was, one, something we could do now, and two, it might at least force the Germans to recall some planes from the east to help protect from another raid. It was better than nothing. Meanwhile, on White, the Canadians were joined by free French commandos and new recruits of the U.S. Rangers, an outfit just put together by Truscott. Soon, the Rangers would be spread among the Canadian units. As the men trained, taking part in two massive mock amphibious landings, the date of rudder was pushed back from late June to July, and it would be moved again. But as the men improved their techniques and communication skills, their bosses were not. The Royal Navy decided that nothing larger than a destroyer would be used in rudder, as in, it was not wise to have a capital ship just off occupied France's coast, what with hundreds of enemy bombers and fighters a few miles away. The next body blow came from author Bomber Harris, in command of Bomber Command. He had just had his first 1,000 bomber raid on Cologne and wasn't about to give up one-third of that for rudder. So, to sum up, before the Canadians went ashore, there would be no heavy naval bombardment and no preliminary aerial bombardment to soften up the enemy's defenses. Tactical surprise would have to do the job of both. And yet, rudder was not cancelled, not by Monty, nor Mountbatten, nor Churchill. But if Churchill wasn't under enough pressure to do something, more was added when, as he had been in the Oval Office with FDR, a call came through saying Tobruk had surrendered. That call came on June 21st, and four days later, the Prime Minister was on his way back to London. But it didn't stop there. Zooming out, Egypt looked like it might be in Axis hands soon enough and the Germans were pushing on the Eastern Front, and the Japanese troops seemed about to enter India. Oh, and tons of shipping and vital supplies were being lost in the Atlantic by the U-boat menace. And the icing on the cake, Churchill was about to go through a no-confidence vote in the House, and it was too close to call. And so back home, Churchill pulled together Mountbatten, Alan Brooke, Hughes Hallett, and two other senior military advisors. Churchill asked point blank, could the men in the room guarantee that Dieppe would be a success? Which shows how desperate he was. But Alan Brooke's response was along the lines of, you're asking the wrong question. He replied, you must abandon the idea of invading France, because no responsible general will be associated with any planning for invasion until we have an operation at least the size of Dieppe raid behind us to study and base our plans upon. And that was it. Churchill greenlit Dieppe officially. But was that really what happened? That account came from Hughes Hallett, written years later. And if it did have the blessing of the Prime Minister, who desperately needed a win, why weren't larger ships involved or the bombers added back on? The absolute truth remains clouded in a mist, probably on purpose. By July 3rd, all those involved in this raid on the Isle of Wight 
were aboard some ship or another. There were, after all, some 200 ships in the area. The Brass was there as well for a good send-off, joined by General Eisenhower as some U.S. Rangers were going along. But then foul weather, well, foul enough, came along, and there was a 24-hour delay, and then another. Then, word reached Combined Ops that the 10th Panzer Division had just arrived in Amiens, just eight hours from Dieppe. And as the raid was to last 15 hours, that would see the Canadians and commandos trying to get back aboard their ships, all the while fighting off Panzers. As Combined Ops couldn't just ask the Panzers to leave, the entire enterprise was reduced. Now the men would reboard their ships after a shorter stay, hopefully before the Panzers showed up. But what no one was apparently doing was asking, uh, will the enemy notice hundreds of ships just off the Isle of Wight? The answer was yes. Early on the morning of July 7th, the ships had been there for a week, four Falk Wolf 190 fighters each carrying a 500-pound bomb, was seen coming in to the west of the island, and they made a bomb run. Amazingly, some of the bombs struck true, but did not detonate. They just went through deck after deck, killing four men. The Germans disappeared. The bad weather did not. On July 8th, Rudder was called off, or delayed. Who knows? Monty just assumed it would be cancelled entirely as they had just shown the Germans their hand. The Canadians disembarked and were soon off white, back at their camps. Lord Mountbatten called for a post-mortem with an eye to learning something from this fiasco. But what would happen instead was that this very process would revive Rudder. And at the center of this second chance of life was Lord Mountbatten, charming all before him, even if his arguments were not that persuasive. It would go off around August 18th, and now was to be called Operation Jubilee. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, you've heard me say uh, for the last couple of years, you know, occasionally in an episode, when it's poignant or when it's um, cogent, uh, it can always get worse. And that's the case here. So I think I might have entertained you with some of uh, the stuff going on here. So first there was a health scare. Uh, Still getting over that. And then our air conditioning went out for three and a half weeks in June and July. That was bad. Uh, Then we got invaded by some millipedes. There's been a ton of rain here. So they're all over the place. Um, That's something else happened. Anyway, so we decided to get away from it all. And we decided to go to the beach for five days. Uh, Thank God for points on a credit card. That was the only way we could go. But to prove that can always get worse, um, as we're backing out of the driveway, and we have a long driveway because I live in the country. It's like 100 yards, and there's turns, and there's trees. You can't see the bottom. As we're getting, as I'm backing out of the driveway, I'm using the camera, and I'm looking closer to the road. I'm like, there's way too much green and not enough asphalt. What's going on? So we finally get down to the bottom of the driveway. And this massive tree of mine fell right across the road. Nobody behind where I lived could go to church. We were leaving on Sunday. They couldn't go do their errands. We called VDOT. We, a bunch of us got out there with our bunch of neighbors. And this is what I love about the country and country folk. Everybody's got a tractor and everybody's got at least two chainsaws. So a bunch of us got out there and it took us an hour. 
But uh, we, we finally got it done. It was still messy, but we finally got it cleared enough for people to get through. And then I turned to all the guys and said, thank you. I'm heading to the beach, which probably sounded heartless, but I, it's not like I could change anything. So when we got back, I, I finished cleaning up the rest. But, you know, be be grateful for what you got. Do the best you can with what you got left because some more can always be taken from you. That's this week's life lesson. Okay, so on to thanking people. Uh, I've got some new members here I'd like to uh, thank. Uh, Andrew Titley from Athens, Georgia. Uh, Richard Haley from Fredericksburg, Virginia. Hey, Richard, uh, neighbor. Uh, as far as donations, here's a returning guy who I love. JJF, John J. is at Fournier, I believe. And then Dan Schaefer, Schaefer, uh, made a big donation. Thank you. Um, and uh, he wants to help me with my YouTube. Paul and I are now putting the episodes on YouTube, so you can check that out. Another donation came from an Adam Farkas, and another uh, donation came from a Braden Brown in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Then I got... Um, from a lady, her name is Karen Green. She sent me some lovely photos of her relative that was involved in the war. I will be sharing some more of those as soon as I get some more information. And then uh, John Bellier, I'm not sure how to say his name. He sent me a very lovely letter telling me of his grandfather, who was a fusilier from Montreal. He was involved in Dieppe. Sadly, he did not survive the raid, as many did not survive the raid. And uh, John also became a member. So thank you very much, John, twice over. Um, now that I'm back, um, we're going to try to get back to trying uh, trying to put out an episode every four days if I can make it happen. Uh, so again, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your assistance in my continuing time of crisis. And we will see you as soon as we can with the next episode. Take care, everyone.